Hi, I'm Ben. Hi, I'm Rob. We've been mates since we met at drama school in 2004. We're both actors, and for the last 10 years we've been working in all sorts of productions, from small fringe shows to big arena tours. We love the theatre, so we thought we would make a podcast to bring you a series of inspiring conversations with interesting people from the world of theatre. So this is our podcast. Welcome to Inside the West End. Inside the West End with Ben Morris and Rob Copeland. Thank you for downloading episode 22 of Inside the West End. We are on Twitter. Follow us at Inside West End. Find our page on Facebook, Inside the West End Podcast. And if you want to get in contact, then of course email Inside the West End at gmail.com. Coming up, we speak to Gary Wilmot. Gary is a living legend of the theatre and TV scene here in the UK. He started his career working in the uh, working men's clubs as an entertainer and it went on to become one of the UK's best known performers. Rob, you worked with him in Radio Times Musical a few years ago, right? Yep, he had the pleasure of watching me. Uh, bluff my way from tap dancing and playing the clarinet badly for six whole months imagine that pleasure and uh, yeah when we work with Gary he, he, he really strikes you what a great raconteur he is he's got so many good showbiz stories and I just found myself drawn to him asking him about advice and chatting to him about the, about the industry generally uh, so when I found out that he listened to our podcast and was interested in coming on we jumped at the chance before we get to the chat I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who's got on insidethewestend.com and clicked the donate button it costs us money to make this show and at the moment it's me and Rob paying for it and we love when you guys get on board and help us do that so do go on insidethewestend.com click on the donate button and throw into the pot whatever you can to help us keep making it also do you shop online with Amazon if you do head to insidethewestend.com click on the Amazon adverts it takes you straight to Amazon as normal your shopping costs you exactly the same as normal but Amazon give us a small kickback as a thank you Anyway, here is our chat with the legend that is Gary Wilmot. Hello, this is Gary Wilmot and you're listening to Inside the West End. Gary Wilmot, welcome to Inside the West End. Is this it? This is it, you're in it. It's fantastic, it's great. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. It's a pleasure. I mean, I know the sun is shining outside, I'd much rather be by a pool with a big tall glass of something but uh, you've got water I've got water here and tissues and t- so, uh, <laughs> always a necessity in the West End <laughs> um, we were saying just before you arrived that there out of everyone we've interviewed your, your career is probably the most diverse you've done a little bit of everything uh, TV radio straight theatre musical theatre so before we get on to that massive career we want to take you right back and ask you to tell us about the young Gary Wilmot. Well, I consider myself to be young now. Um, so, you know, you're not going back very far. Yes. No, you're going back yeah. a long, long way. I was born in 1954 in Lambeth. And I was educated at a school called Wyville Primary School on South Lambeth Road. And then I went on to Beaufoy Secondary Modern School, which is actually in the Lambeth Walk, um, which is quite significant to me because my first musical was Me and My Girl. And yeah. the big song from that was doing the Lambeth Walk. And if I wasn't... Well, when I auditioned for that, if I wasn't uh, 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 Bill Snibson, the lead character, I certainly knew loads of them. Uh, my father was in a, uh, a group called the Southlanders, and they, he came over on a ship called the Windrush. We're kind of going backwards and forwards here, but uh, in 1948, I think it was, he came over on a ship called the Windrush, 
uh, which brought lots of uh, Caribbeans, men and women, mainly men, over to Britain because the government had decided that there wasn't enough manpower in this country not long after the war. And so my dad bought cheap passage on the Empire Windrush and, and, and arrived here and met my mum, who's, who was from Birmingham, and uh, they moved to London, and my dad joined a group called the Southlanders. And uh, it was him, his half-brother Alan, it was Frank Manor, and uh, my Uncle Vernon, who I'm going to see on Sunday, actually. Um, uh, Uncle Vernon was very kind to us when my, when my dad died. I was very young when he died. Uh, but they had a song called I'm a Mole and I Live in a Hole, which some of you may remember, but my dad was the bass voice who actually sang that line. Um, so... Yeah, it must have been really... It's only as an adult, when I got kids of my own, that I realised how difficult it must have been for my mother. I really never appreciated that when I was a teenager. But she was not only a single mother, because my father had died, but she was the mother of two black boys. I can't even begin to think what t- life must have been like for her. It was, she had a, ver- a few very close friends. Consequently, I was raised um, as a black boy in a predominantly white Community. There were two, two or three. In fact, my best friend Edwin, Edwin uh, was the product of somebody who was Swiss and African, and uh, he was the same colour as me. So we kind of formed a little bond. But the majority of my friends were were white, uh, Anglo-Saxon, and um, and it was it's weird really because I never really thought of colour when I was growing up. It's not until I came into the industry that I started to consider it. Yeah, I remember sitting on a workbench once. Um, I was it was my first job. I was 15 years old. This is how English I was. I was sitting there and I was reading The Sun and I was eating a cheese roll and having a cup of tea from a flask with a mate, an elder guy. And, uh, and we're laughing and joking about you know, page three and all the things that were there. And he turned to me and he just said, you know, you're the first black bloke I've ever liked. And I, don't, I, I remember that so vividly. But I didn't at the time understand what he meant. And of course, I, now I realise that, that, that racism has nothing to do with colour, absolutely nothing to do with it. It's to do with race and not understanding and being ignorant and naive. And when I say ignorant, I don't mean in a nasty way. I just mean you don't have the information. So it's, it's, it, it, it was difficult back then. Of course, now being black has not helped me back at all, not in the slightest. Um, some, when you look back at some of the some of the shows I've been in, I'm surprised myself. It's only when I look back that I realise how fortunate I've been. Uh, going into me and my girl following Robert Lindsay into that, you know, um, and playing an archetypal Cockney character from 1937. Um, I never thought they'd give me the job, but they gave me the job, and, and that started my musical career. Uh, in Copacabana, to all intents and purposes, I was Barry Manilow. Um, and then I played Fagan and, uh, and, and, and Elliot Garfield in The Goodbye Girl. It was Richard Dreyfuss in, in the movies. Um, loads of others there's, there's just loads of them and I look back and think my god I've been really lucky so when you said that you were when you reflect on your mother now raising black mm. kids in that environment you now appreciate how difficult it was for, for her what, what do you mean by that then if you say uh, it hasn't held you back well I had I had mates who didn't have shoes on their feet and I remember and I know adults say it was just what the norm was you know we didn't have shoes but we didn't think oh we wish we had shoes now I was lucky my mum always provided for us but I knew families in in you know not far away from me mates whose little brothers didn't have any shoes on their feet and and at the time my childhood was my was my childhood and I was just going through it and it was what it was but as an adult I, I can now look back and see what pressures my mum must have been under back then when there was when there was racial prejudice there was a lack of understanding uh and she was a single parent you know all those things were stacked against her and she did a fantastic job Mm. you know she really did so can you remember your first um time performing 
Uh, yeah, I can. Yeah. What was that? Yeah, it was in a place called the Enterprise Club in in Tottenham, and uh, and, and I walked out and I got a, a guitar. Now I had no idea why I got a guitar because I can't play the guitar. But I I got this song I'd written. It was like most first songs that people write in their teens. It was very depressing, and uh, and I went out. But I got a few few um, a few tricks up my sleeves. A sleeve. I was a, I was a, I did some impressions. So I finished the number. But when I walked out. Um, in front of this, there must have been twenty or thirty people there in this social club, and uh, at, at the microphone. I, I know, you know, obviously, that there's, a, there's an adjustment halfway up the microphone, and the guy introduced me and put the stand, the microphone, in the stand, but that it was low. It was like my belly button height. <laughs> I walked out with my guitar, and I had no idea what to do, so I just bent over and sang. So the first two <laughs> minutes of my act, the audience saw the top of my head, and I looked up and I saw my mate frantically gesturing for me, waving his arms about, lift it up, lift it up. So I stopped singing, I lifted it up and then carried on. But I, I did impressions. I did Stevie Wonder and, and Norman Wisdom and, and lots of others. And, uh, and at that time, it was, it was unusual to see a black person doing them. So, and, and Lenny Henry, of course, came along at the same time as well, doing impressions. I'll never forget his first time on television. It was on New Faces. And uh, he was, he'd got his head in a pram. He'd got a raincoat on and a beret to do Michael Crawford or Frank Spencer. And he did the voice was perfect. Yeah. And then he turned around and he got the blackest of black faces. And, and it was an incredible, incredibly funny thing, you know. So how did this develop into, like, you, you're finishing school mm-hmm. and then you're moving into working in the profession. What, what, what happens then? What happened after you finished secondary school? Well, as I hinted at earlier on, I, I was always a bit of a joker. I was always trying to make people laugh. I played lots of rugby and football, and of course, great breeding ground for performers, uh, that is. And uh, so I used to like making my mates laugh and physically and, and verbally as well. I'd always be up in the pub telling some jokes or some stupid story I'd written, always doing it. And um, my friends, uh, it's a phrase, I'm, I don't use it, I've not used it for a long time, but this is absolutely true. They said, you should be on television, you're better than that rubbish on the television. And just two years afterwards, they were saying, look at you, you are that rubbish on the television. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Uh, television, it really soaks up your material. How comedians do it now, on the, I never know. Is that, did, you, did you have to write your own stuff all the time, or did you have a team of people working with you? No, no I wrote everything. I, yeah. I eventually had a guy I, I wrote with, um, but when I first started, you were collating, um, you'd nick a little bit. It was, it was kind of accepted back then. As long as you didn't nick whole routines... You, you could kind of nick a joke and if you could expand on it then it became your piece of material um, now of course it's absolute taboo you don't work at all if you steal someone else's material but um, uh, there was a guy called old American comedian called Milton Burl who was called the, the thief of bad gags and he said the reason I nick them is because I can do them better than anyone else which is real confidence in it yeah. and so there was a lot of that going on but I would take a joke and I would try and expand it and make it my own and, or I would you know and, and as you were doing your, your, your set um, your your spot as it was called back then uh, in a social club somewhere you were editing as you went along you know you'd have you'd have your show and you would go that didn't go very well tonight driving home four hours to drive home you know and all that and uh, y- y- you would edit it so I was my own chauffeur my own writer producer director um, I ironed my shirts and my pants and and you know you turned up you, uh, lucky enough I never carried any gear with me i.e. Um, I don't mean drugs I mean <laughs> I don't mean any uh, microphones or sound equipment I always said you know I can do it but the sound equipment has to be there and it was always provided sometimes terrible sometimes brilliant so how did you make that leap from 
working in these clubs to TV. It's moment. not a leap. It's really slow. It's a slow... Back then it was slow. Now, of course, they go on X Factor and everyone knows who you are the next day. Uh, back then it wasn't the case. Well, there were lots, there were hundreds, thousands of acts working the clubs. I mean, clubs... There were literally thousands of working men clubs, not in London, although there were some in London, but you go north of London, Birmingham, uh, Newcastle, in South Wales, North Wales, Scotland. There were loads of clubs all over the place. So... You could work in an area for three, four weeks and then go home and go back there again the next year and, and do your same act and people would have forgotten you. Um, uh, so there were, there were lots, but there were also lots of agents and that was the link to television. There, was, there were programmes like Opportunity Knocks and New Faces and, uh, and I was lucky enough that my, the agent I had at that time, who was also a performer, he managed to persuade somebody to come down from um, New Faces and uh, and they came to see. I was doing a double act then with a girl, Gary Wilmot and Julie, and she and, and we did the show. And, and he came in and said, you know, I'd love to have you on the, on the show. We went on the show and we did, with the help of our, our agent, we did a, fan, a cracking three minutes, and we won with the highest points anyone had ever got until Patty Boulay came along, of course, some years later. The great Patty Boulay, um, we'd got 116 out of 120 points or something, and so that made us kind of. It made us household names and immediately. I mean, 18 million people watching a program then was pretty much the norm for a good program. The two Ronnies, Morecambe and Wise, and New Face, of course. People wanted a handle on the new young people coming through. So, um, yeah, it, I, I remember walking across a zebra crossing that very next morning after it had been transmitted, and somebody tooted their horn and held up thumbs, you know. Mm. And you suddenly realise, my God, this is an incredible impact. Uh, and then from there, um, I, I did summer shows and and holiday camps and you, you keep working away it was weird because to do something with 18 million viewers one night and then you're working some well then they were quite, some of them were quite dodgy but and I went to a dodgy one uh, working men's club you know full of smoke everywhere smoked so the rooms were full of smoke and and uh, so I was doing I did new faces one day and in front of 18 million people and then a really bad working men's club the very next night but then you slowly work up and then I got an audition um, I got an audition for a, do you cough at the mention of smoke I'm so sorry yeah, it's no. all right. <laughs> so when you're on stage and you know when dry ice comes off the stage yeah. and everyone starts coughing it's one of my pet hates oh like, is that right maybe I just did it psychosomatically <laughs> yeah oh. <laughs> okay uh, uh, well then uh, I, I was doing it was my first show was me and my girl and I was rehearsing for a pantomime we were rehearsing the pantomime was going to be in Bristol and um, by now, everybody in the 80s knew who Gary Wilmot was. I'd been on all sorts of television programs. Uh, the equivalent of the one show was the six o'clock show back then. And, we, and I was one of the presenters on there with Danny Baker, Michael Aspel and Cheryl Baker. And we, you know, we weren't, we weren't, no, no doubt about that. And so I was doing this pantomime and we were rehearsing in the Fortune Theatre rehearsal room. And I got a phone call from my agent saying, Mike Ockrent, the amazing Mike Cochran uh, was, uh, was the director of Me and My Girl he's doing auditions for the leading lady but he's, he said he'll see you and so I just went round there in the lunch break and saw him and I'd seen the show Me and My Girl about six months before and thought it was the best thing by a country mile that I'd ever seen in my life now I knew I wasn't anybody's idea of this character Bill Snibson and I think at that time David Schofield was playing it and uh, and uh, Carl Howman and Robert Lindsay had played this role and and uh, and so I walked down the aisle and the set was up and I was so gushing about this show all the things you shouldn't do about a show uh, about somebody he's absolutely gushing and saying this was great that was fantastic and that when the house moved forwards and the piano comes on and no one's pushing it it's just coming on on its own I'd never seen anything like that before and so I um 
I did the audition, and the next day they phoned up and said, would you like to meet Alex Armitage, because we're interested in you for Bill Snibson. That started the ball rolling in musical theatre. But you, your instincts as an actor, <coughs> I, I, I've had the, the pleasure of watching you act every night f- for a tour that we did, and I'm not just saying this to, to blow smoke up because you're sitting opposite me. I genuinely think you're an incredible actor. I really oh, do. You. Where, but you've not trained. You've worked in comedy clubs, television, panto, and then you get this musical, and you're playing the lead in a musical. Where do you think you, this instinct as an actor has come? I think it's, well, you know, it's really scary getting up in a working men's club. And it's a great grounding. I always say to performers, you know, if they've got any young people, you've got any advice. First of all is, yeah, don't get a mortgage. That's the first advice, because then it means you can work wherever you want. <laughs> um, and the second piece of advice is get up and do your act anywhere, in front of family, pubs, wherever it is, all of it. And it wasn't until you get experience that you really understand what people mean by saying do it for the experience. I've been lucky enough to work with some amazing people. I mean, really amazing people in musical theatre and the straight theatre. I've seen some stuff. But when you're working in those working men club, the clubs, they are really, they can be really aggressive. I remember going out one night and coming off stage after a 45-minute slot, and I didn't get one like They just sat and looked at me for the whole 45 minutes. And it really disheartened. And I, and I went into the dressing room, and the concert secretary came in and he said to me, fantastic we'd have you back again and I thought he was joking and I said uh, well thanks very much but you know I don't think I'd like to come back he said no we want you back I've never heard them so quiet so all those things they're scary and you learn from those experiences you, you learn that even though an audience one night may not be laughing they might be the best audience they may go away and tell everybody this is the best show they've ever seen I have this little saying that I work tonight to make it better for tomorrow night's audience always looking for new things after two years in me and my girl in the last two weeks i found something and went why didn't i have that right from the start that's such a good little bit so i'm always looking i'm never complacent and i think that's a really important element to have as a performer don't be complacent don't sit in the wings talking and chatting and when your cue comes along walk on think about it you know consciously sit in a room and, and 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 go right how can i make this my performance better I've worked with some great performance. On the first night, they give a great performance, but it's exactly the same performance a year later, and I've seen that countless times. And that's fine. That's the way they work. But me, I can't do that. I'm always looking to make it better and better and better. And so uh, I suppose it's an instinctive thing. Hope you're enjoying the conversation. Stay tuned, and we'll be back to the chat in a moment. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. We release a new episode every other week. And if you're subscribed, it'll just appear on your device ready for you to listen to. It's very, very easy to subscribe. If you've got an iPhone, just head to the podcast app. You'll see next to the logo of our show a little settings wheel that looks a bit like a cog. Click on that. A few options down. It says subscribe. And the best part is it's completely free. Now back to our chat with Gary Wilmot. So when you start on a new project, mm. what, what kind of preparation do you do for it? What's your process in creating a role? I stand in my kitchen and I do my level best to get off the book. For me, that's paramount. It takes me time. I'm dyslexic, so it, it takes me time. I cope. If I have to go in cold or I have to go into a voiceover, I, I, can, I, I cope and I find concentration you know, is really, my concentration is at its best. But when you have a, a reading difficulty, when I left school, of course, I, I could barely read and write I, um, because I was too busy trying to make people laugh. I never concentrated at all on my schoolwork. I do my level best to get off the book because, it's, for me, 
Everybody has their process. I worked with an actress once who, after four weeks of rehearsal, and she was reading the book all the time, a really fantastic, a Laurence Olivier award-winning actress, three days before we were up to open, we said, are you coming to the pub after rehearsal? And she went, no, I've got to go home and learn it. Now, I'd learnt mine by then. I have to have it learned I, I, because I don't... I don't like the idea. I want my hands free to pick up props, to point, to look, to be aware of the other actors. And I need that. But that's my process. Everyone has a different process. You have really worked hard, worked and earned your stripes. Does it frustrate you then working with younger performers when they take it for granted? Like, Because you must have people in ensemble of shows who moaning about the job, moaning about understudy rehearsals. Does that frustrate you? Creatively, I, I like to work with people, whether they're young or old, that raise my game. I, I don't mind if, they, if they're complaining. When they get out there, if they help me raise my game, that's great. I've worked with some very experienced performers who don't raise my game. I suppose all that really comes back from me, my days playing football. I played football at a very good level, Saturdays and Sundays. And then when I came into show business, I played with ex-professional and professional footballers. And when you play with those guys, you play better. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some, there's some magic that happens that you play better. When you've got a great director, you act better. There's no getting away from it. You're still the same person, but, you know, your juices, you're inspired and uh, your juices are flowing and you're thinking positively, not negatively about... And I've had uh, directors, good and bad, choreographers, good and bad, and you just so know the difference. They're not necessarily good and bad. They're just... They're not right for the puzzle. You know, I'm not a dancer and I need someone like Steve Amir who understands how dance, how non-dancers what they're capable of he very quickly assesses Alistair David I know you've spoken to they assess what you can and can't do and make you look your very best he had a struggle with you I know (laughs) (laughs) no they do they try to make they push you and they make you achieve more if they're really good at their job but then I've turned up with some choreographers who have a fixed bunch of steps in their head and there's no way they can adapt them and they get frustrated that you can't do it but you know I, I do what I do and I do it to the best of my ability but I'm you know, I, I, sometimes it's impossible. You have to find another way around it. One of the most important things I like to see on a stage is, a, is an actor who's absolutely in his own skin. He's so comfortable. Do you audition anymore? You yeah, spoke about the way shows are cast mm. and stuff. Do you audition or are you just offered things? Yeah, well, it went through a stage of meetings when you, when you have meetings with people. So you have a lunch or something. And, and I've done a few auditions. And I, I don't envy the people that have to do that every single time. And uh, But sometimes it's a job you think, oh, I'd really like to do that. Yeah, come on, let's, I'll have an audition. I'm not, I'm not proud. I know I've had some amazing success in my life. And, of course, what goes up must come, come down. And, and it's difficult. It's almost impossible to maintain that standard unless you're on television every single week. You can't maintain that profile. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not proud. If it's a job that I think I'd like to do, I'm not I'm not worried about auditioning. I don't know. I was never taught how to do it. I learned the song, and I I kind of go in with the attitude. Right, how are we going to make this work? What's been the hardest moment of your career? Oh, um, in those early days. You know, those early days being in debt and then wondering why I'm doing it, and then thinking, no, this is better than working for a living. You know, so you know, driving up to driving up to Newcastle in my old Ford Avenger that's, you know, had four, four or five different owners and I've paid 200 quid for it and I drive up there and it's clanking and I'm praying it's going to get me, get me there and you do a, you do a lunchtime show for a, about a dozen blokes and you're on the bill with a stripper and, you, and, you, and that's absolutely true and, um, and, and you know it's not show business because you, you look through the curtains and this stripper, is, she's, got, she's got, I don't know if you remember this, I've got such a vivid memory of this, um, these 
tape recorders with all the buttons on the end. Like a little, it was a cassette player, yeah. and you put the cassette in about halfway up. You went the speaker, speaker cassette, and these buttons, yeah. and they just lowered the microphone onto this little thing, and it was appalling. And there were blokes there reading the Sunday papers, not paying any attention. And then I have to go out and try and make these people laugh. And, it, and then I get in the car and I drive all the way back to London again. So I've driven to Newcastle, we've got 30 quid, performed for a bunch of people who don't want me there and driven back to London. And you think, oh, well, you know, it's, it's better than scaffolding or whatever it was I was doing before. Have you ever considered leaving? Like, has it ever got to a point where you've gone, I don't know if I want to do this anymore or is it just never coming into your brain? Of course it does. The, I think the difficult thing to, to appreciate, and this is why uh, actors dye their hair when they're getting older, um, I think... It, you, your your image changes as you get when you're the when you're 22 or when you're 20 you know and you're the young sprightly lad and you get to 29 and you're the handsome lead and then you get to 40 and you're struggling a bit because you're on stage with a girl who's 20 and, and you're 45 or 50 whatever and uh, and then you're thinking no this just doesn't feel right and then they're ringing up and saying you want you want a role of the granddad you know in this production and so you're changing and you have to you have to accept that you know you, you can't uh, I had an agent once who said you need to dye your hair and I said well what if somebody wants somebody who says oh you don't look old enough you know you go, oh, but I'm grey you know <laughs> forget this cream I've got wrinkles I think it's important to, to stay to stay real in this industry because you never know what's around the corner because you've, you, you've done a huge amount of panto mm. throughout your career well, after we worked together you became the dame for the mm. first time at the Birmingham Hippodrome yeah that's right one yeah. of the biggest pantos in the country yeah. massive change and you embrace that? Well, I, I've done loads of sketch work in my time, and you know, I've always seen dames. It's not. It's never been a desire of mine, uh, and I'd much rather be playing buttons. I have to say, yeah. but and it was a surprise. I did kind of enjoy it. Um, having breasts was a wonderful thing. I was going to say, was yeah. the heels or the it's breasts? A, it's the breasts, and having breasts is a wonderful thing. Uh, and <laughs> um, but no, it's great. It's a great character. Dame is a great character, and you can have good fun. I don't think as much fun as, as the dames used to have before everything became such high-tech. Again, evolution, that's what Panto is now. And uh, I'm fully accepting of that. But it was more on the performers in the old days. It was more... It was more... Uh, there weren't great big high... It was sketches and, and loads of routines and crossover talk. And it was an exciting time. Whereas now I sit in the dressing room for 15 minutes for the helicopter to take off and, uh, and with the princess in it. And then, uh, then there's a great big beanstalk that's the state of the art and the giant comes on. All these things are great spectacle. Um, but they're not what daming is about for me. I, 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 I don't mind daming. I think it's, it's fine. But I don't, I've not really fallen in love with it. The people that you've worked with, regardless of what their job within the production is, the people that you've worked with that you love to work with and that you see as being very successful, what do you think is the common denominator between those people? I think they're very giving. I love to see shows where people are, are, are given, again, probably back to my variety days, where you see, you don't get a spark. If other performers, if performers aren't giving to one another, supporting one another, you don't get a spark between performers. And so for me, the show's not going to be as good. I love it when you're on stage with people who know what you do, you know what they do. Um, but it's not just on stage. Um, the without a shadow of the doubt a shadow of a doubt the people the most important people in our industry are those incredible 
men and women who put on black jeans, black shoes, black t-shirts every single night and stand in the wings. They, they're the ones that make sure your tea is the right temperature when it comes come to drink it on stage in the scene. They make sure all your props are there. They are, in, they are the, the unsung heroes of musical theatre and that's stage management. They make sure the door is right for you. They make sure the props are there. Uh, they, they, they're there to, make you, to, to facilitate you doing what you do. I mean, that guy may have walked on the moon, but you know there were millions of other people behind the scenes. He couldn't have done that without all those people there. And, uh, and they, for me, are the people I love working with. Um, the creative side of it is great. That's what I've come into the business for. But when you've got great stage management, you know, it's such a difference. It makes a huge difference. We have a question we ask everybody. Okay. And you can uh, take it out however you like. All right, I'm straight. <laughs> sorry, mate. I'm sorry to let you down. I just bless my tissues just in case. <laughs> you said earlier on, blow that for a game of soldiers. So I was like, I've never heard that before. Have you not? Hello, I so, yeah. Blow that for a game of soldiers. The question is, mm. is show business a game you need to learn how to play? Oh, that's a great question. I think you do to a certain extent. I've, I don't think I've ever played. I don't think, I mean, the likes of Harrison Ford haven't played it in Hollywood. It's only lately that he's, he's, we've seen a lot of him. Um, but I, and I don't profess to be Harrison Ford or anything like it, but, but I've never really been there. I've got to be at the opening. I've got to be there. I, I've got, got to do all that. I've never really, and maybe I've suffered as a result of that. Uh, you know, my, the thing I love doing is being in the rehearsal room with like-minded people trying to make a show the best you possibly can. The other stuff, the twi- I don't understand tweeting. I, I kind of read it. I don't really know what it does or where it goes. <laughs> Facebooking, I just think it's a great way of staying in contact with friends. No idea what Instagram is. All those things help to... I don't know what they are. I mean, I look, I look at Facebook and think, why is everyone else in the world having such a great time <laughs> I'm sitting at home? But, uh, but now I've never really... Maybe it's a generational thing, uh, but I've never really gone oh I need to be there and I need to do this uh, I suppose for the first 30 years of, of myself being in the, of me being in this industry it, I wouldn't say it was on a plate but I was famous and known and so I was invited to things I didn't have to work that hard to be invited to the Olivier Awards uh, I was I, I presented the Laurence Olivier Awards the whole thing you know and um and I was asked not because of my ability, because I was dyslexic. My reading was appalling. So I sat with the script for hours and hours and hours. You know, I've actually memorized it. Forget reading the auto cue. But and those things, I, I kind of I think to myself, no, I'm going to do that because that I'm going to do that because that's what you need to do in this business. But the idea of, of playing the game, a lot of people do it and they are very successful at it. And I just find it I just get a little bit uncomfortable doing those sort of things so I tend not to that's why I don't live in London so Gary what's the one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who wanted to work inside the West End if you've never worked in the West End before it's not what you think it is working in the West End and touring are two completely different things um, to, to contrast it, when you're touring, you're like it's like Brits abroad. You're your company, and it's somebody's birthday, and you all go out, and it's much cheaper than it is in London. And or you go walking, to, you go to the zoo during the day, or everyone goes to the cinema, and there's just things you do as a company. In London, that doesn't, not it doesn't exist, but it's much more rare. People go in, they do their job, and they go home. Several reasons for that. One, it's really expensive to go out. You can't go out every night. So don't be afraid if it's your first day uh, in the West End and you go in and at quarter past ten when the show comes down, everyone goes home and you're left there on your own. Uh, don't be surprised. 
because it's not it's not what you expected to be it's great fun and you get to meet some wonderful people and I've done loads loads of things I, I can't say I've done everything but I've certainly filled my life well and uh, I wouldn't say I'd be happy to die tomorrow because I, I know the sun's going to be out tomorrow <laughs> but uh, no I think that's that's it just it's not what you expect it to be, so be prepared. Work hard, be attentive, don't be late, because there's nothing that pisses people off more than being late. And, and pay attention to the very end of the rehearsal room. Gary Wilmot, you're a living legend. Thank you so much for taking the time Thank to you. come on the show. Can we, uh, can we put our clothes back on now? Yeah. Feel a bit vulnerable. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for coming to chat to us. Uh, we were genuinely thrilled when we found out that you wanted to appear on our podcast and that you'd already listened to episodes. Gary's one of those people who we could have just kept chatting to for hours. He's got so many interesting stories. So, Gary, thank you very, very much. We'd love you to get in contact with us. We're on Twitter, at Inside West End. We would also love you to keep sharing our episodes online or by word of mouth. Both go a really long way, so keep it going. We make this podcast for free. If you've enjoyed it and you want to help us make future episodes, then here's how you can. Next time you shop online with Amazon, visit insidethewestend.com first. Click on any of the Amazon adverts on our site. It will take you straight to Amazon. Your shopping will cost you exactly the same as normal, but Amazon will give us a small kickback as a thank you. Also on insidethewestend.com, you'll see a donate button. If you'd like to make a direct contribution, then click on the button and follow the link. That's all for this week. Keep an eye on Twitter at Inside West End to see who's our guest on next week's show. Thanks for listening. 